Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. This is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston. I am your host. Today I have Sebastian Tutanj with me today to discuss his new book, uh, Intoxication and Ethnography of Effervescent Revelry, which was published by Rutgers University Press just last year, 2022. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So, Sebastian, can we start off? And um, could you could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, where you're working at, what your profession is, what your what your interest in research is. Yep, sure, certainly. I'm an associate professor at Lund University. Um, I'm an anthropologist and a sociologist, but uh, actually, I mainly teach criminology, cultural criminology. We have this uh, master's program at Lund University, where I invest most of my um, academic energies in, in that program. And uh, as for research, I, I guess I have like two areas that I that I prefer to do research in these days. So one of them is, is nightlife, drug use, alcohol and so on, which is what my book is about. And the other one, which is um, another uh, domain, which is about uh, street crime and extremism. It makes sense that pairing of anthropology and sociology with the nightlife and you know ethnography and just the approach that you took to this book. So um, that is very interesting. And so intoxication. How did you come about doing the doing the study for this uh, for this? Well, what turned out to be a book? Maybe it never. You didn't know that going into the research, but uh, what came out of it was a book. Yeah, exactly. You know, this this is taking me so many years. Like, don't even want to think about how many years this took me. So it started like way, way back when I was a student uh, in anthropology. And then I got this student job where I was supposed to, you know, collect data on, on young people's use of drugs and alcohol in, in a small town in, in Denmark. And then uh, this, I just saw this as a side thing, because what I really wanted to do was to study Buddhism in India. And I was preparing to do fieldwork there and everything. But then I just somehow got more and more intrigued in these uh, young people that I was uh, observing and in, in talking with in, in this town called Rengstel, um, especially by this determined uh, focus on getting really drunk. So in Denmark, it's mostly the drinking. That's, that's, that's the main thing. Uh, not so much drug use, but just, you know... Um, when you come and enter this field, uh, you know, sober, doing systematic observation, talking with people, it just struck me that there's something super interesting in how we humans in, in many cultures intoxicate ourselves and it's super destructive and yet also can be super pleasurable. So I, I really wanted to study that. And then it turned into my master thesis and I continue studying it in different scenes, not in only in the province in Denmark, but also in, in other parts of Denmark and in Bulgaria, even in Spain, uh, with tourists going on, on a weekly binge. Uh, and um, I guess, you know, 
looking back, the, the main driving question behind this is basically why do we intoxicate ourselves? We can see it happens in all cultures at all times that people come together for intoxication with or without drugs. Um, and I find that you know fascinating. Why, why on earth do people do that? Sometimes people die from it, addiction problems and so on. So, so why do we do it? And that was the, the, the project that turned into. And then a central theme that I that I saw throughout the throughout all of the chapters of the book is this concept of collective collective effervescence. Um, could you tell me a bit more about what collective effervescence is and how it how it how it is somewhat varied across different scholars and how they see collective effervescence? Right. Yeah. So that's that that concept became the key to to my research eventually. Um, I tried different other concepts and theories. You know, we have edge work, we have uh, oceanic experience by Freud. We have many other tools that we can use to understand group intoxication. But um, collective effervescence is definitely my my favorite one. It, it captures, and, and that would be perhaps the, the key argument of the book, it captures the essence of what people are searching for and sometimes experience when they come together for group intoxication, especially intensive forms of, of uh, intoxication, such as, as festivals or um, nightlife resorts abroad and so on, and nightclubs. And what does it mean? So if if we go back to Durkheim, he, he was the one, uh, together with Marcel Mauss, uh, who wrote about this and, and gave lectures about this more than 100 years ago. And um, so they began doing this 130 years ago, approximately. And then in the book, Elementary Forms of Religious Life, which is, I think, maybe Duquesne's masterpiece, if, if one should mention one, uh, from 1912. And there, uh, collective effervescence refers to an absorbing group experience, an experience of profound excitement that involves some sense of being taken out of oneself and merging with some larger whole, the group, forgetting about oneself and so on. So if, if one pictures a crowd of ecstatic worshippers dancing around a, a bonfire or something, that's the kind of uh, excitement that Duquesne had in mind with this concept. And um, he believed that this altered state, it is an altered state of consciousness, that it's ex- essential to all religions. It's a sort of connection that people will feel when they um, fall into rhythm performing a dance a ritual dance or swaying during prayer or chanting to mantras and so on so it's we can find it in all all religions according to your came it's kind of the main religious experience and at the peak of the experience um, according to your came and many who have kind of used the concept since when people really connect with each other they they tend to forget themselves daily problems uh, concerns about the future and so on and just immerse themselves in the in the in the group Um, and then he also has you know a whole bunch of ideas of how how this experience um, can open up to new ideas and also that it would tend to be 
channelize into symbols that then come to stand for this uh, magnificent experience as, as it can be. It can also be a dark experience, but um, but he, I guess he mostly talked about the positive sides of this, although he was aware that things can go horribly wrong when people are excited in, in this manner. And I don't even think that he had the opportunity to, in his life, to fully develop his conceptualization of uh, of uh, collective effervescence, because I think to myself, if he if he lived a little bit longer, would he have tied it back to division of labor and you know the difference between organic and mechanical solidarity? And in a 21st century, with the heterogeneity of our of our society, um, is it difficult to have collective effervescence? And is that important stage uh, forgetting about oneself and dropping out of society to see the group more than? more than one's own personal differences from the rest of the mm. group. Yeah, no, you're totally right that, that he, you know, died soon after the publication of this book. He gave some interesting lectures afterwards where he was able to elaborate a bit and defend himself because there were critics at the time. Um, and, and they would, for example, one of his collaborators, Gaston Ricard, he wrote that uh, Duquesne reduces religious experience to a sort of orgiastic state. This, this group state, and he ignored other kinds of religious experiences. And also, Bronislav uh, Malinowski, the anthropologist, raised similar critique. And and they were also agreeing that, you know, Duquesne, he doesn't fully develop a typology of types of effervescence. Oh. He, he hints at, at, at maybe two types at the most, but... but um, but surely, you know, the effervescence of a, of, in a nightclub is not the same as that, you know, around the totem pole or in, in, the, in the mosque or in the Hindu uh, sect and so on. So, so uh, what they call for back then in, in, in critics of the book is, you know, what, how does effervescence differ across social gatherings? And that problem, interestingly, has followed Eukamian research up till today, even when we have, you know, big big, um, magnificent books about effervescence, such as uh, Randall Collins' work in Interaction Ritual Chains, uh, another masterpiece. Even in that book, there's no this, no attempt to kind of distinguish between types of effervescence. I, I think that's uh, that's been kind of a hindrance to Duquesne research for decades. And then Collins is probably the next big name that we think of when we think of collective effervescence in his uh, uh, ritual chains. Um, could you tell me a bit about his conceptualization and how it's different than Durkheim, Durkheim's original and you know how Collins has made a name for himself there? Yeah, yeah, you, you're right. He, so I, I think maybe he, he is the main thinker today who has used and, you know, weaponize this uh, this concept so it can be used to study a whole range of of things and and it's really been taken up by so many researchers the way he he uh, he reformulates it and the model the theoretical model that he builds and he's pretty close to Duquesne and his concept of effervescence except for one you know huge difference and, and that is that Collins extends the concept to cover instances of group excitement that occur on a day-to-day basis for Duquesne, it's this unique experience that people feel a need to commemorate through storytelling and rituals afterwards. And, and it's like it's something that touches the very heart of society. It's not that often that it happens. And then Colin says, well, it does happen. It can happen during a, an engrossing 
conversation when we are physically together and that there's this flow in, in interaction and we can read signals from each other and then we build up um, stir up emotions collaborate you could say in, in stirring up emotions and then the magic of effervescence can happen in a conversation or during casual sex or during singing in the church you know on a, on, on, on a lazy afternoon and on a Sunday and so on it can happen uh, on a daily basis so that's the, the big difference there and I tend to side with Collins on this that that it needs not be this completely mind-blowing experience that happens uh, you know once a year maybe we can have small doses of it um, on a daily basis and, and I think we we need it you know, that's interesting. I didn't even think of Randall Collins in this way before, but you're talking about this, and I'm thinking of uh, Howie Becker's, Howard Becker's becoming a marijuana user and how there's some parallel there between the two two scholars. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Um, and and uh, I think also the genius I have Collins' book here on my side, I often have that, um, is also that he, he builds this model um, of the causes and effects of effervescence. Where is it? It's on page 48 in, in my version of the book where he, so he, he is, Collins is a sort of a positivist microsociologist. Um, so he's very interested in the causes and effects of social phenomena. So he, he uh, you know, he argues that what what is needed to have effervescence. So first and foremost, group assembly, there needs to be, at least two persons present, co-present in the same place, so physically close to one another. There has to be a, a sense of barrier to outsiders. There has to be a mutual focus of attention and then a shared mood. So mutual focus of attention is that we, for example, during dance, we, we dance together, we were focused on the same beat, we become mutually aware and we become aware, become aware that we are aware of the same thing, doing the same thing. And then the group magic can happen where the group comes to understand itself as a group, and, and that's what generates effervescence. So this is part of of of, um, of Collins' rethinking and rereading of Durkheim that's really brilliant and has proven so effective in empirical studies um, in recent uh, in the recent two decades. And then your conceptualization uh, that led you and your research uh, on on. Uh, collective drinking uh, and the collective effervescence that took there. How, how do you conceptualize uh, collective effervescence as, well, as, as something that happens in everyday yeah. life? So, um, you know, so the, the one problem with Duquesne is that he's French. I'm only half French. So he, he doesn't really defines the concept that well, at least in his book. Then there were some speeches where he's more, a bit more specific. Um, and it, also with Collins, he doesn't go much into effervescence itself. It's more the cause and, and effects because he is this has this pension for positivistic approach to things. And I'm more interested in the experience per se. I, I have this phenomenological tendency in my work. So I'm interested in the experience. So that's why I go in and try to describe it. And then I also present a typology of types of effervescence in, um, in, in my data, which is about, which are about nightlife behaviors. So that would be my two main contributions to this theory, I guess. And so I understand effervescence, the experience as having five 
experiential components. First and most importantly, there's this powerful feeling of connectedness. That, that's the kind of the key of being part of a community, a common body. That's key. Without connection, genuine human connection, there's no effervescence. Then it's something else. Then it could be just excitement, or you can you can you can you know do a video game uh, online with your friends where you get all excited. But it's it's not effervescence if you don't have connection. Second, there is an intense rush of emotions that carry people outside of themselves. It has to be intense. Uh, it makes them forget about the humdrum and stresses of everyday life. Third, there will be some transgressive urges emerging that, that make people do what they don't normally do, say what they don't normally say. It can range from you know innocent breaches of convention to, to, to law-breaking and so on. Um, and fourth, the energies of it all tend to be channeled into symbols that then come to stand for the experience and the, the group that generated the experience. I can maybe go into these five elements more one by one if you want. The fine one is that people come out of this with a sense of purpose, vitality, solidarity, um, and unity that makes life worth living. It's, it's some, we need this. Um, so would you like me to go more into each of these elements because maybe it's a bit abstract to just um... yeah that would be good yeah i think that the uh, then our listeners could take that material and and um be able to have a better understanding of of what you're writing about and how you were seeing the different uh you know scenes that you were when you're doing your ethnography great perfect um and then i mean also it's good to think about one's own experiences of connection in, in one's life, whether it's in nightlife situations or in a church, a mosque, or, or on the football stadium, if, if one can kind of tune into to that emotion, that, that's helpful for understanding what what we're talking about here. But um, So if we look at the, the first component here, the connection, then um, effervescence, the crux of it is to feel closely connected. And for Duquesne and, you know, Jokamians, there's something inherently meaningful in meeting new people, getting close to them, moving to the same beat, singing to the same beat, sharing emotions and so on. And not only because we can obtain stuff from it, like we can get, we can network or we can obtain long-term friendships or a partner and so on, but also just for the sheer pleasure of it in the here and now. So connection in order to connect, period. It's not some kind of project where you do something in the here and now to obtain something in the future. It's also its own reward in itself. Oh, an end, in, uh, not a means to an end, but an end in itself. Yes, it makes exactly. Sense. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's this autotelic experience, the complicated word there, but you know that I have to look up repeatedly to understand it. But exactly that it's an activity that is its own reward. That that that, and it sure is. And and then. Typically, people will feel, when, when we interview people about this, they will feel connected with other humans. That's the most important stuff, that you feel intimately connected with people. But sometimes people will also say that they feel connected with nature, uh, at race, for example, outside in nature, that there might be a connection with, with animals or the wider universe. So this connected feeling sometimes extends beyond the uh the community of, of humans but but the human connection is, is kind of the most important one 
and what people mostly talk about when they try to describe this, which is difficult. It's difficult to interview people about it because it's a, it's a, it's an experience, and how do we how do we put words into it? Um, then intensity, as I mentioned, would be the second key element of this experience. And if we think about the sensations that arise when a when a superstar goes on stage at a, at a concert, you you know you're there, maybe with a beer in your hand, talking with your friends, and there's a simmering of energy in the room. And then all of a sudden, Rihanna or another star comes into the scene and you can just, it just explodes with energy. So the, that's kind of a, 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 in full, a full expression of uh, effervescence where people kind of uh, connect with the, the icon, the, the, the energy star up on the stage and then feel mutually connected. And the, the emotions just turns into this whirlwind um, that, that runs through the crowd. That, that's, that's kind of energy implied. The transgressive part is, um, I, I guess it's only natural when people enter these states, and then people will feel um, emboldened to cross boundaries, that, that they can do stuff that they usually would not dare doing. So there's this um, experimentation, boundary crossing that tends to take place. People explore themselves and each other, they try out new ways of being, see the world from new perspectives, live out potentials that normally lie dormant, uh, are kept away from public view, and look into aspects of themselves and aspects of existence that tend to be ignored, repressed, or forbidden in, in, in their normal lives. And part of what I like about the Ducayman tradition, which also counts um, George Bataille, Michel Mafezouli, and uh, yeah, Randall Collins, is that transgression is not something that's necessarily bad. It's it's just something that we humans sometimes do. It's not necessarily something heavily sinful. If, if we look at children, for example, they transgress the rules that adults set up all the time. And it's a natural part of growing up that we, we, we get a boundary, we get a rule, and then we breach it in order to figure out where is the rule, where is the boundary. So we cross it in order to become aware of it and know where it is and also what the consequences of crossing it is. And if we relate it to nightlife behavior, then this systematic crossing of boundaries that are that you can see if you enter a nightclub or a festival, uh, people talking silly, behaving silly, or doing daring stuff, um, it can be seen as a systematic investigation of the rules that we live by in normal everyday life. And then maybe people can figure out if they want to live by those rules or if they want to establish new rules and so on. So it's a natural part of Especial, especially youthful uh, youth life, uh, children's life. That I mean, but of course, then obviously, sometimes people go too far, and sometimes also way too far, and that also happens. That things go awry. Effervescence is potentially uh, dangerous. It's always risky, uh, and sometimes you know there will be abuse, there will be fights, there will be people overdosing on stuff or, or getting into accidents and hurting themselves and so on. So that's that's part of the picture that it can go awry for sure. The fourth element, this civilization thing, is the most complicated one, I think. Um, but let me try to explain. So when, when we have this, let's 
picture the, the concert, then people get pumped up with all these energies. Um, and most of this energy is invested in the moment to make it more pleasurable. It's not that people try to save up energy for, for, for the next day or try to get something out of it in, for the future. And yet there is a tendency for some of the energies to become channeled into what you came would call sacred objects, such as a totem symbol or, you know, Rihanna's autograph, if you can get that one, or a picture uh, of you and her together or something else. It could be anything that turns into a symbol of the experience. So these symbols, these effervescent symbols, become repositories for the collective energies. They are like batteries that can be used after the celebration to evoke some of the effervescence that happened in the past. So when people take out the autograph and show it to the friend or the picture, or then they will kind of feel it. You can, you know, holiday pictures of, of you know, from, from Ibiza or Cancun or wherever, where there is a effervescent moments in, depicted in the picture when people see it and share it and share stories around it, they reconnect with those energies. Um, so that that's kind of a, a mechanism in in effervescent moments that I, that uh, came he, he he observed and it's kind of been shown again and again that that's something like this happens that we come out of these moments with symbols that carry memory traces that can help us connect with those moments and people really want those symbols they want those pictures or items that can help them reconnect with their past effervescent moments. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that that's I don't know. Did I explain that okay? Is it was it? Yes. Yeah. yeah I think so we're living the moment through a through a uh, through a, a, a symbol. Uh, I think of maybe even a you know a jersey that a person might wear to a football game uh, or something like that to remember the past uh, past experience that they had with their friends. Or uh, I think about um, some of the NFL games now that you go to uh, or baseball games even, and you can buy a beer. But not only do you get the beer, but you get to keep the cup, and then the cup reminds mm-hmm. you of the experience that you had yeah. with your uh, and, friends. Yeah. And, and we just intuitively know that these items are important because they can connect it with these experiences. And, and um, you know, some thinkers uh, kind of discard this as trivial and not that important. But, but these items can be super important to people. If you're a, a fan of some soccer team and, uh, you know, you wear those symbols. Uh, if you're a big fan, you wear them to funerals you you wear them to weddings and so on it's it's not just something funny it's important to people too because that these they can connect people with effervescent moments and the community behind that moment and that's why they they be like people will die for their community symbols sometimes their soldiers dying for the flag running into a bullet range pull out a piece of cloth uh but it's not just a piece of cloth. It's the flag of their group that they have through rituals invested with the energies when they salute the flag, when they gather around it and so on. So symbols are something that people will die for because they they are generators of social solidarity and community. 
and it's infused with energy, right? I mean, just as you're talking about the symbol is infused with energy and it can be positive or you know negative energy. I, I think that I think about the all of a sudden the team starts doing poorly or the team does something against your allegiance, people burning jerseys after after a player leaves the, leaves the team or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so people will have hot emotions when, when they see somebody burning their symbol or stomping it. Uh, we, we have many contemporary examples of that. Um, yeah. So good, because that symbolization element is, is a, a bit difficult to get your head around if, if you're not used to this kind of theory. But um, so, but. Good, we nailed that one. Um, I'm happy it came across okay here. Um, so the final element would be revitalization. Uh, so the, the book, by the way, has a, a chapter on each of these five elements. And if we go back to Durkheim, he, he saw effervescence as something necessary and irrepressible. And we also see this in Colin's work that effervescence is something that we need just as much as we need a sense of safety, food, and so on. Without it, we grow paranoid, depressed, and anxious. Uh, we could see that during the corona where people couldn't connect that much with each other, that for many people um, who were isolated, it was a magnificent problem, right? That, that, um, that we need some kind of effervescence. Wherever we get it, we get it from so many different places, but we need it. Uh, it's a fundamental human need. Um, so Duquesne was quite clear on this, and he—I um, don't know—I—I—I I, I share this conviction that effervescence has potentially edifying qualities, and I believe it's—it's it's crucial to cultivate a deeper understanding of these uh, qualities if, if we are to make better use of them. Um, but of course, again, effervescence is and always will be risky. It can be dangerous. If states of effervescence take hold of people in unsafe environments, uh, especially if, when we're dealing with very young people who tend to be pretty care or bad at taking care of themselves and things go wild. So I think as a society, we really need to think about where do people today get their shot of effervescence, like the, the, the big um, full-blown effervescence? Well, it's very much in commercial settings, nightclubs, um, also football stadiums, of course, and some in religious uh, institutions. Politics also now is a growing arena for effervescent moments. So we have to look into what, who are controlling effervescence today and how can we as a society become better at, um, so if we talk about nightlife, at having effervescent revelry that is less focused on heavy drinking and drug use and more focused on music maybe, dancing, uh, healthy uh, activities and not just you know heavy binge drinking, which would be the kind of, uh, of, of, of of substance that drive much effervescence in in the Nordic countries where I come from and uh, and uh, in the country you come from, Michael. Yeah. So now that we have a strong foundation of what collective effervescence is, uh, everything from the stages of collective effervescence to the necessary components of collective effervescence. What do you think some of the most interesting parts of the research that you did with uh, drinking uh, in Denmark um, were? What were some of the experiences that, that were most interesting to you? Um, 
Yeah, so it's the most interesting parts of my fieldwork would definitely be in these nightlife resorts, uh, sunny beach, golden sands, Ibiza, in, in the states you have uh, Cancun and uh, yeah, Fort Lauderdale in the past and so on. I guess it's not anymore a big nightlife resort, but so that, that these places where people go to party intensively for a week or two and those settings were really interesting for me to to observe and 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 be there and see how people you know they come become destabilized during vacations like that i i found that very fascinating they um and and that can be fun and fulfilling for many people but for, for some it, it it causes you know anxiety and uh, i met a few who had a psychosis in sunny beach or oh, that's what i'm not a psychologist but that's what it seemed like and and all these, um, yeah, ex- extreme experiences that people uh, pursue for pleasure and, 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 and can be super destructive, and yet we somehow need it in some form or other. And um, yeah, I don't know, but also an interesting thing that I hadn't read about in the literature, but just for these settings is that many of the young men who go to these places, they they buy sex from sex workers. I had not read about it before. Um, we did a survey about it. I can't remember exactly the numbers, um, how many went to buy sex during these vacations, but it was it was a lot. Um, many went to strip clubs, which is very uncommon in Denmark, and went pay for sex. And you no know, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, young men. And so so that surprised me. And when I when I started interviewing people about it, it was interesting to see that it was not because it was particularly pleasurable uh, when they described these experiences. It was full of uh, even, you know, disgust and uh, craziness. And so, so I think a big drive to do it was to try it out and also to get a good story out of it, because that's, that's also part of these behaviors that people want experiences that they can then later talk about, tell about to friends, selected friends who will not, judge them too harshly for what they did and it was over it was over several nights i remember the story of almost like going to going to bed drunk and waking up and going right back into the drinking practice again in, in some of these circles yeah yeah it's um it, it can be quite overwhelming and some of the younger ones they i remember a conversation with a young woman who had panic attacks and uh, so she was you know certain that somebody had spiked her drink with drugs and then i just went through okay what have you done during this these last five days that we've been here and it was continuous drinking almost no food uh you know pizza slices here and there a burger uh very little sleep and so on i was like you you know might maybe your drink was spiked and you know i have to watch out for that but maybe it was your intake of alcohol and uh, and junk food for and lack of sleep it can do pretty heavy damage on you uh, if you don't uh, take care of yourself and uh, so many of these young people they didn't fully understand that before uh, they didn't know about this but that's what people came there for and the, without without such party experience uh, vacationers wouldn't be going there mm-hmm. exactly it it has to be wild you don't go to sip uh, sip juice and and play with lego as as another tourist said um yeah 
So then uh, there was pro- so I'm hearing that there might have been a specific uh, cohort of people who would go to these places for the experience. You were saying some of the younger people. Uh, so was there a specific demographic that you found yourself seeing more often than others? Yeah. So if we focus on this Danish study, which is where I have most of my data from, they were uh, middle class, uh, you know, on, on the track of getting a, a decent educations and uh, having good lives. Um, it was not, um, it was not, you know, marginalized individuals. It was people from, from good backgrounds with uh, the future ahead of them. Um, so this whole idea that it's escapism that people drink heavily to escape from the burden of life and to forget things and forget their miserable lives and so on. That was not really the case with these Danish uh, people that I studied. They, they were hap- they're pretty happy with their lives. Of course, life occasionally is not fun at all uh, for all of us, but, but it was not escapism. It was, um, it was first of all, an embrace of uh, communal states of effervescence. It was, um, and of course, you can see it as, as kind of both, uh, if I should not simplify things too much here, that, that you pursue these experiences as a movement away from the dullness of everyday life. Yeah, that's, that's that to it, of course. So it is, in a sense, some sort of escape, but it's also very much an embrace of the community and of these wild experiences and all the good stories that come out of it. It has this dual nature, I think. You call it communal, so it has a cultural element as well. So it's not something that is, you know, completely taboo, necessarily. Mm. No, yeah, no. And there's so much talk about these experiences before it happens that people will tell stories about uh, those who have been there to the, to the novices, uh, showing pictures, and and then you go there, and people possibly want to get a wild story in order for to have it in the future. It's it's quite reflective, so you might call it a kind of reflective immoralism going on there, with with some mindfulness of the future narrative potential of what's happening. Um, it's. Um, hmm. So were there any experiences that you had while you were doing your research where you thought uh, maybe it's time for me to pick up and go home as a result of, uh, you know, what you saw or maybe reflected on whether or not you were having some sort of an impact on the behaviors that were that were taking place among the groups you were, you know, part of hanging out with? Mm. Yeah. Um... Yes, I mean always when th- there would be fights, there would be people getting hurt. There would be uh, the, the first year I was in Sunny Beach. I, I actually it was part of my PhD project to to go there, and um, I wanted to because a lot of the research on youthful drinking and nightlife tourism is problem focused, very much. So I, I wanted to look into the pleasures. Why do people do this? What kind of pleasures are involved? That was kind of the the question before I really arrived at the theory of, of, of effervescence. And then the first year I was in Sunny Beach, there were five, four young people who died. Um, and uh, I think it was four, three or four, you know, one person who drank so much, he was 17 year old and he died. I was supposed to be on that pub crawl. Um, I knew somebody who was family with him that I was with when it happened. Uh, and, um, you know, he drank. He vomited 
and then he kind of choked in his own vomit. So that can happen if you drink extreme amounts of alcohol. So horrible things like that happen. Also a Swede who was killed by some bouncers due to some stupid conflict um, and so on. So I saw these horrible things um, that made me realize, okay, my project can definitely not only be about pleasure, but has to also look into these dark forms of effervescence that uh, are clearly there in environments like this. But but it didn't want me to go away or, or, or go home, I think, but more made me more curious and, and, um, and you know, determined to kind of carry through with this and, and uh, write about it. So what's your, uh, what do you think your next steps will be? Are you going to continue this research uh, in Danish countries or do you find yourself probably moving on to the next topic, moving on to your next study? Yeah, I'm probably going to work on a bit of different things, um, gang, gangs in, in, uh, in the Nordics. But, but regarding this topic, I, I want to go a bit ahead with this uh, typology of effervescence. I think I, I need to do a bit more on that. I have it in my book, this, uh, these different types of effervescence. But together with uh, Professor Philip Smith from Yale University, we, we are um, assembling an anth- anthology with chapters about effervescence in different contexts online, uh, ayahuasca users, uh, graffiti writers, uh, rioters, and, and many other topics where we want to, part of the project is to figure out, okay, how, how does effervescence differ across cultural contexts and across gatherings, sizes of gatherings and so on. I think there's more to do there. So is that one that you have a call for papers that's active, uh, actively open for people to contribute to? Uh, or is it one that uh, you're going to invite specific people to? Um, it's, uh, well, if anybody has a good idea, please do get in contact with me. I, I'd love to hear from, okay. from you all. Um, we, ha- we, we have found the chapters, I think. The, so it depends a bit on the editor, which we haven't found yet. Will we have 10, 11, 12 chapters? Is, or is there room for more? So we have those, I think we have 11 chapters now, but who knows, uh, maybe there can be another volume. I think there's much more interesting stuff to be done here. I'm just thinking also, who, why haven't somebody written more thoroughly about um, some of the attacks on, on Congresses that's happened in the US and in, in Brazil, uh, on Capitol Hill in the, in the US, uh, lots of effervescence there. So Randall Collins has written uh, an interesting chapter about it for sure, but we I think we need more research on this and and what happens on the ground when people pump up the energies and when situations of in group love and uh, and merriment turn violent. When I think of things like AI, artificial intelligence, and how that contributes to uh, collective effervescence, whether it uh, supplements it or enhances it, or what you know, what role does AI play? And you know, it's very exactly. early adolescence. Yes, I think I, exactly. I just had a an exchange with uh, Philip Smith yesterday about this, where uh, there was somebody who tried to attack the the, the British Queen after intense interaction with an AI robot. So the, the robot kind of stirred his emotions to, to, to a point when he you know, felt uh, maybe in love with this robot. I don't have all the data from this situation, but what he did was to you know, almost carry, try to carry out an attack on, on, on the queen. 
Um, so is it effervescence? We don't know yet, but definitely a stirring of, of emotions in an interaction that can uh, lead people to do good stuff, heroic stuff, but also barbaric stuff. And then internet, internet, I'm always fascinated by because being in rural Iowa, there's you know um, this uh, CCTV that I'm currently looking at where I can be anywhere I want to be on the internet, and I can watch what's happening without without having boots on the ground, without having to travel all over the place. And I think to myself, uh, can collective effervescence be observed from a distance? And uh, I regularly get caught up in Goffman because Goffman was all about face-to-face interactions and, uh, well, also another guy who died too young without being able to experience or enlighten us on what he thinks about the Internet. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the huge questions for, the, for, for, for future research and hopefully in the near future is these online technologies, how, how can we study effervescence with them and also... So Duquesne would have it that we need to be co-present physically to have effervescence. Collins is on the same page. I am too. Uh, But I think we need to be open that we can have effervescence, perhaps. It means we need data on it. When we're alone in front of the screen, if, you know, through gaming, for example, surely there is excitement. That's obvious. Everybody who's seen that can see the excitement, but is there... And the sense of presence and being mm-hmm. there. You're, you are there yeah. physically and yeah. and mindfully. Yeah. So that, that that's something there that we need to, to figure out. But my position for now is that being physically co-present just exposes us to a bombardment of stimuli uh, from we can look, touch, smell, all these senses that are being activated in uh, interactions where we're in the same place that technology today doesn't allow for. Uh, we can't smell people online yet and so on. And so I, I go with Collins and you came on this, that, that well, full-blown effervescence, you need to be in that same place. I, I think so. And Zoom would be a good uh, good data point to start at, right? Looking at the Zoom classrooms and whether professors could get their students uh, all on the same page to drop out in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Excellent. This has been this has been great. I, I really appreciate your time on the on the show today. Um, but uh, we have time for any last words or any last ideas that you would like to share with with everyone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Please get in contact with me if you want to discuss effervescence. I'm very open to that. Uh, all things effervescence is is in my interest and probably <laughs> always will be. Um, yeah. And then thank you so much for inviting me to, to this show. And I'll put uh, Sebastian's contact information in the um, in the little write-up. So please, uh, as you said, get in contact with them with any questions or contributions you'd like to. And again, this has been another episode of New Books uh, in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.